This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. So the scripture reading today is Hebrews 2, 5 through 3, 6. Um, So um, please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. For it it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell them of your name, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. But surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of of the Lord. Morning, Emmaus. It's good to see you guys here in person. Um, Before I jump to the sermon, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we want to we want to thank you for this moment and for this this space that you've given us to um, to declare even the things we've already declared about you. That you are a father that that loves us deeply. That you paid a price that we can't comprehend. 
um, to call us yours. Um, Jesus, we're just so thankful for that sacrifice, um, those of us who love you. And so I just pray today as we, as we open your word, as we look to the judgments that you've given us as your people, um, that that word, word would, would spur our hearts um, to a deeper love for you, a deeper appreciation for your gospel, um, that, that your words that you've spoken um, would be clear and ring, ring louder in our hearts um, than anything that I could say. Um, so yeah, Jesus, just be with us and give us your spirit to have open hearts and eyes to see your beauty. So it's in your name we pray, amen. So this morning, uh, I'm going to start right off by giving you exactly where we're going to end up, because I hate surprises. No, <laughs> just kidding. I mean, a little bit. Sarah can attest to that. Uh, but I just want to go ahead, because I want us to, to get one thing this morning. And if I could help us receive that one thing um, from the text this morning, uh, I want us to be able to, to have confidently walk away with that thing. So I'm going to kind of ruin the surprise <laughs> of the text and give it to us right away. Um, so going all the way to the very last verse of the scripture reading Andrew just read for us. Uh, so chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Amen. So I'm going to come right out and say it. If we were to take one thing home away today, from this section, it's this. And the thing that I've been praying for, for us this morning, is that we would grow in our boldness to speak and to live out the gospel because we are so confident in the truth that it holds. We're so confident in the beauty of what Christ has done for us as his people that we are able to go out, go out into the world, go out into our community among us with confidence in that truth. That we, as the word says, that we would boast in that hope that we have, that others would look at us and they would see that we are carrying that hope with us. And so that's the one thing I want us to take away. Arnold Levi, you guys can, you can come back up now. <laughs> Just kidding. That'd be an awesome sermon from my perspective. <laughs> but uh, we're not quite through. Um, this morning, I think there's, there's times when we jump into the word and it can be a little tricky. Um, I would say that mostly about a lot of the sermons I had to preach for Isaiah. <laughs> uh, it's not as on the nose as some of the epistles are. And I think that's kind of where we're headed today. Um, there's a lot of things that the writer of Hebrews says that is just kind of in our face, and we have to, to take him at his word. Um, but I, I want us to, to see kind of the overall picture. Yes, like, I did ruin the ending. We are getting to the fact that what he's trying to tie up the section with is that he wants the church that he's writing to, to, to be confident in the salvation they have, to be confident in the work that they've already been taught about who Christ is and what he's done. Um, so this morning, really what we're doing, we have confidence in that, but I kind of want to unpack how he gets there, which is kind of what he's doing. And I, I feel like there are kind of three things uh, that, that kind of help us break up that passage and kind of help us understand how do we get to that place of confidence? What, what is it that we that helps us get to that place of confidence. And so here are the three things. We're gonna talk about God's original intention for us, his original intention for creation, and, and how just even in that, we can have confidence in the work that Christ is coming to accomplish. 
And then second, the, the work that Christ accomplished. We should have confidence in not only the, the who, but the what. And so we're gonna talk about Christ's perfect propitiation. And if you don't know what that word is, that's okay. Because <laughs> it's a churchy word, and we're gonna unpack that. And then the last thing is that he kind of draws on is Christ's superior role, which is really a huge theme throughout the whole book, is how Christ is greater um, than a lot of the people of the faith of the Jews that they had, had come to know. And so those are kind of the three things, um, three, I think, kind of major, major points that the author is bringing up to help us understand how it's possible for us to have confidence, um, to walk away from here carrying a hope with us that the world needs to hear. Um, so that's kind of where we're going today. So before we jump back into the text, I do wanna offer a couple of contextual things that I think will kind of help us understand um, the original audience. Um, one is, you know, Aaron kind of covered this the last time we were in Hebrews a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, we're kind of still in the middle of this argument that Christ is better than the angels. And I think at first glance, um, we don't really struggle with angels. <laughs> we don't really struggle with like the um, over fascination of angels. That's not really a 21st century church problem. And I think Aaron really helped us understand um, maybe how to think about it in our context. And when he kind of had us ask, where do we put our confidence in less reliable things than what God has said about his son? You know, the, the author of Hebrews, last time we were in it, was kind of making a point like, angels were a source of reliability, but they shouldn't be considered higher than Christ, who is the most reliable. How much more reliable is the son of the father than his messengers? Um, so that's kind of, that's another context. We're kind of still in that a little bit. Uh, the other contextual thing is to think about the church the author of Hebrews is writing to. This is, I guess, depending on who you think wrote the letter, this is a church who's under persecution. Um, this is a church who is under the rule and reign of Emperor Nero. Um, if you don't know much about Emperor Nero, you can see Emily Poole <laughs> about that because she's a history buff. But I'll just go ahead and say that uh, we have it pretty good in the 21st century <laughs> as a church compared to them. Um, despite how you might feel about our government right now. Um, so yeah, just kind of with some of that context of drawing on where we were at last time we were in the letter and just kind of understanding uh, the context of the, what the church is going through and, and why some of the things are so important that the author is trying to get across. That's kind of the context we're in. So I hope that kind of helps as we actually dive into the text. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, so starting in chapter two, verse five, let me read that for you again says, for it was not to angels the God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so, kind of like I said already, the, the first place we're going is we need to understand God's original intention for creation. Um, if we're going to kind of frame the necessity of, of what Christ did. And so the author kind of starts off this portion of the argument, again reminding us angels are not superior to Christ. We've kind of been over that. Um, but he's kind of making a specific argument that they aren't superior to Christ because 
God has given Jesus dominion over the world. That's not something he's afforded angels. And so we see, you know, the, the author here, the, the passage that he's quoting is from Psalm 8. And it's a, it's a psalm that David wrote when he's considering the way that God looks at him, that he is having trouble fathoming that God cares about him at all. Um, and we, we see that psalm, and, and the writer of Hebrews understands that, that ultimately that psalm is about Christ. Uh, you know, the, the phrase, the son of man, it's a term that Jesus uses to, for himself all the time in the Gospels. Uh, and it's the idea that, that, that Christ is fully man, that he is the ultimate version of the image of God being born in the world. Um, and so Paul kind of also uh, points, sheds some light on this idea that Jesus has dominion, that it's Jesus' right to have dominion, not the angels. And he does that, in, if you're familiar, in, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, where he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's not a claim that angels can make. <laughs> and so, yeah, again, it's, I think when we understand that, it's, it becomes more obvious that the Psalm 8, that what he's referencing is, is about Jesus. But there is another literal meaning too, because David is the one that wrote the Psalm, that it's also about humanity, that we can take it at face value. That God's original intention for humanity was to have dominion over the earth. The idea that, that God created all the things around us and he created them for us. That he, you know, looking back in, in Genesis and chapter all the way at the very beginning of your Bible, in Genesis 1 verse 26, after he created man, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's a lot of creeping. Um, but yeah, the, there's a shift happening in the argument of Jesus being greater. And it's moving from angels to humanity. He's saying, okay, like, understand, Jesus is better than angels. I know you have this, like, over-fascination with him and almost a kind of uh, mythology around angels at this point. But Jesus is better than them. Uh, even in their, their great appearance and their, and their mightiness and power, Jesus is greater than them. And not only is Jesus, but we are. All of humanity is greater than the angels in the eyes of God. And there's a beautiful truth in that. That we may be lower than angels in spectacle. We're less impressive in power and appearance. It's kind of why... They're always like, hey, don't be afraid <laughs> when they show up because they're terrifying. <laughs> if you've read any descriptions of them, like Ezekiel, Revelation. But they don't have greater significance to God in the spiritual sense because God made man and woman after his image, not the angels. Who is pre more precious to God is not these great beings of power, but us <laughs> and our frailty. It's as if to say the, the author of Hebrews is saying, remember 
you are significant to God. You know, I think about, thinking about this, it's, it's often easy to, to feel insignificant and especially easy for, you know, those of us, we live here in Colorado, for us to go out into the mountains and to, to go on a trail and to hike a summit or to be at the base of a, a mountain lake and to just see the, see the scale of the creation around you and to say, like, I'm tiny, which is true. Or even think about, think about yourself and the scope of history, all of the, the millions and billions of people that have come before us, all the things that humanity has done throughout history and to say, like, what significance do I have in that? Like, I'm a blip on the timeline. Like, how many of us even know, like, our great-great-grandparents' names? Like, even in our own families, we forget people. We forget, forget their significance. And I, I think the author is saying, regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you see the scope of your life compared to some of the marvelous things of creation, whether that's angels, whether that's a mountain peak, God considers you significant. And that's why you're here, because he loves you. He created you with a purpose to bear his image. That's something the mountains don't do or the, any other great spectacle in creation. He's given that to us. And I feel like that alone, that can give us confidence, that can give us hope, that can give us a joy of, wow, like God, consider, God is mindful of man. He considers man and, and, and woman, and he loves us. But I think if we're honest when we think about that, we only get to a certain point, and we kind of understand, but why? Because we, inherently, we see that even though it was God's intention for man to have dominion over the earth and God's intention to walk alongside us in the garden, something broke. That we, and whether or not you believe in Christ this morning, I think all of us can say it's obvious that there's something broken with our world. Whether it's things going on in Afghanistan or things in Haiti, things in our own backyard in Denver, there, there's an obviousness to, to the brokenness of reality, to the brokenness of the creation that we are so tempted to marvel at and those around us. And so while we can have confidence in God's original intention, we, we understand that, to some degree, we understand that that original intention is broken. It's broken by sin. We lost sight of who and whose we are. But God chose not to leave it that way. Because of the significance that he has given to us, God was not satisfied to leave it broken. So he decided to have an even greater intention than from the start. Look at verse nine. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, our God, he is bound to get his glory. There isn't anything that we can do 
We can't even break creation without God finding a way to get what's his, to get his glory, because he's holy, because he's awesome, <laughs> because we can't even comprehend that. And this is the beautiful thing. His original intention that may have been broken, our original relationship with the Father twisted by sin, He chose not to leave it that way and did so and that he decided what was fitting, what was right for him to come down into the middle of it, to come down into the middle of it all, of the brokenness, of the hurt, of the despair of this world. As Philippians says, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Talking about Jesus but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. R. Kent Hughes said it this way, whereas the height of exaltation for man is being a little lower than the angels, it was for Jesus the depth of his humiliation. God had an original intention but this was his ultimate intention, his ultimate plan, ultimate humiliation. Jesus found his glory. Jesus got his glory at the cross, which is something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because when we look for our own glory, it's not in our humiliation. It's in our achievements. It's in the things that, that bolster us up that make us greater than the person next to us, ultimately, right? I think if we're honest, <laughs> on our, our worst days, that's what we do. And Jesus literally did the opposite. He said, I was already higher than the angels, higher than all creation. Creation was made for me and through me, but I choose to step into it, to make myself lower than the angels. That's what Jesus did for us. What's more deserving of glory than that? A grace like that. That the founder and creator of the universe would lower himself for us. If we have a hard time seeing ourselves as significant, like, doesn't that blow our minds? <laughs> it does for me. So we can confidently thank God for that plan, for that truth, for his judgments. Shout out to Isaiah. But how were they accomplished exactly? I mean, we, we understand, he, the author of Hebrews is saying, like, this is what Jesus did. He came into the world. But why does God just coming into the world, into the middle of the brokenness, how does that make a difference? How does just his presence and becoming fully man, what does that really do for us? Let me explain. <laughs> Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So let's break that down. He's saying it was fitting. This is something that had to happen. And it pleased God who made everything, who sustains everything, it's quite a rap sheet. 
And this, this phrase, bringing many sons to glory, we just sang it in two songs. What does that mean? It means that Christ shared his glory with us. He did something for us and brought us along with him that we couldn't do on our own. Did so by making a way to save us from God's holiness, from his punishment for breaking the world. And he did that by becoming man, by being a perfect man. That one, like verse 10, that one verse is the gospel. <laughs> it's like, here's this whole thing that's kind of packing in the gospel. Also, if you want the condensed version, it's this verse, <laughs> verse 10. Like I could have preached a whole sermon on that, which is amazing. But he doesn't just leave it there. He's like, if that wasn't enough for you, let me like get down into the weeds <laughs> and explain this. In verse 11, he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So we're talking about one source. We want to know the necessity of what Jesus accomplished. Why incarnation? Why was that necessary? What does Jesus coming to earth actually do for us? So you have two people here. Look at that again. We have he who sanctifies, Jesus. Those who are being sanctified. Sinners like you and me. And they all come from one source. He's pointing to Adam. He's pointing to all the way back into Genesis. Adam and Eve, the first people. And what he's trying to say is, Jesus had to come. God had to come to become man because the original intention for man was broken. And that every man and woman and child born since comes from Adam, comes from the sin of Adam. That we are all connected to that. From that one man, all have sinned. Paul kind of helps us understand that in Romans. In chapter five, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's inescapable. But in verse 18, moving a little bit down, he says, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by that one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. One source. What the author here is saying, Jesus is the better Adam, the true and better Adam. We sang that lyric too this morning. Just as sin, just as all of us have sinned, because that was our inheritance from our first man, from from Adam, Jesus came, God incarnate, fully man came to become a better Adam. In a sense, a second first man. One without sin. One who instead of passing sin 
to us passes his righteousness, passes his perf- what he accomplished in his perfect life. That is our new inheritance, not the inheritance from Adam. We have a new inheritance in Jesus, the better Adam. And that is why he is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. Because we aren't just products of our sin anymore. We're products of the righteousness and the holiness afforded to us by Jesus. And he doesn't resent sharing that glory with us. And we look at these, these next quotations uh, that are in here. There's three passages he quotes. He quotes from Psalm 22, and he quotes from Isaiah 8, verse 17, and then Isaiah 8, 18. And this is what he's saying. He's using this to explain how we know that Christ isn't ashamed to call us brothers, how we can be confident in that. In Psalm 22, he's saying Jesus isn't ashamed to be in our midst, to be in the congregations, and to lead us in worship to the Father. He loves us and cares for us and wants us to be edified, to edify each other, to remember what Christ has done. And he leads us in that. He's not ashamed to worship with us. You know, Isaiah 17, he's kind of, sh- or 8, verse 17, sorry. He's showing us that I, I trusted the Father, and I am asking you to trust the Father with me. He's walking with us in that. He's saying, just as I have trusted the Father, walk with me as I trust the Father perfectly and trust him too. And then verse 18, which this is really awesome. When he says, the children you've given me, Isaiah's talking about himself and his, his two sons. And I, I just love the significance the names have in scripture. It's really awesome. Because it helps us understand <laughs> exactly what's going on. So Isaiah, his name means God is salvation. And his sons, I'm not going to say them because they're like Hebrew names that I can barely pronounce. But their names literally mean the speedy removal of enemies and a remnant shall remain. What, what Christ is saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, and quoting that verse is to say, we have confidence that God is our salvation. We have confidence that, that in what Christ did, he removed our enemies of sin and death. We have confidence that a remnant shall return, that it was God's intention for his people to be in right relationship with him again, not to be exiled in our sin, but to be with him in his presence again. Think about that being comforting for us. How, how comforting must that have been for a church under persecution? To have confidence that what was said all the way back in Isaiah, like hundreds and hundreds of years before them, many more hundreds of years before us, <laughs> that God's intention was always to save his people, to be in right relationship with them again. That is what the incarnation accomplishes 
And that's why Jesus had to come down to be fully man. And if that doesn't help, the author goes into even more detail <laughs> of how that's accomplished. He says in verse 14, says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So there's a, I feel like he's trying to hit this nail on the head so many times. So there's a false teaching in that day that, and you know, maybe it still exists to this day sometimes, but that Jesus did come in the appearance of a man, but he wasn't fully man. He came to look like us so we could like grasp, you know, that God was being around us. But he retained, he retained everything else, and he wasn't truly man. And so when he died, he wasn't dying a physical human death. It was for show. And so he, he's trying to kind of squash that, that Jesus wasn't just the spirit with the appearance of man walking around us. He was fully man. That's why he says, if we share in flesh and blood, and we need a perfect Adam, we need a perfect man to live a perfect life, God has to be flesh and blood too. Blood for blood, an eye for an eye. That's what the law demanded. The author is saying whatever makes humanity weak against their sin, against the power of death, Jesus had to enter into that. It was fitting that he would do that. Which means And when we say that Jesus is fully man, that means, and he's kind of pointed this out, he's human in body, human in mind, human in emotion. It means that Jesus wasn't a freaky godchild without emotion and a celestial brain, like, can't wait to get out of these onesies and into a robe. That wasn't happening. The God of the universe needed lullabies from his mother to fall asleep. The God of the universe cried as a baby when he was hungry. Went through puberty. (laughs) Probably had some bullies. He's probably an awkward middle schooler like the rest of us. Maybe some of you are cool. I was not. Christ was totally dependent on the Father as much as we are in his humanity. That's why when he was facing the cross, he said, God, is there another way? Can this cup be taken from me? That was a fully human moment from Christ. That doesn't make him not fully God, but it does make him fully human. Christ was every bit human except in his sin. That's the difference. That's what makes Christ perfect, what makes Christ holy. But it also is what makes Christ sympathetic. 
If that wasn't enough, the author says this. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted in every respect. So we, t- we talked about God's original intention and, a- and Christ making it even better, becoming his ultimate intention. And we've been kind of talking about, okay, what does that make a difference? Why Christ coming to man? And like I said earlier, it's his propitiation. That is what the, the incarnation accomplished. So you're saying, okay, what is that word? <laughs> what does that mean? Think of it this way. So in, in the Old Testament, God set up the priests, and he set up a high priest over those priests. And their duty was to make atonement, to essentially pay off the debt of the sins of the people. And they did that through burnt offerings. They did that through sacrifices and through following the law and being clean. And all these requirements that French should, you can read Leviticus. Um, yeah, or take my word for it. You should probably read Leviticus anyway because you should be reading your Bibles all the way through, but that's neither here or there. Uh, but yeah, so we, we have that history. We have that idea that, um, you know, blood for blood. If the price of sin is death, it requires death to be paid for. And so unless you're dying for that, something else needs to die. Substitutionary. But the thing with Christ's sacrifice is atonement was never enough. Just an eye for an eye was never enough because we are sinners. Therefore, we don't stop sinning. <laughs> we pay off our debt and then we accrue more. And so we need another sacrifice. We need priests every year to make the sacrifices. So when we talk about propitiation, it's the idea that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was not only the paying off of that debt, but it was making us right with who we were indebted to. Something that we could not accomplish on our own. We needed a mediator. We, need someone, we needed someone to pay the full price of the wrath of God because God is just and no sin stands unpunished. So how could we have ever escaped that? It was for Jesus on the cross, someone who lived a perfect life, who wasn't a bull or a calf or a lamb, but was a man who was fully man and who lived a perfect life. The truest way to have blood for blood that was perfectly satisfying for the wrath of God. 
And in that, our debt isn't just paid. We're made right with God. Because God is the one who ultimately paid the price. The one who we were indebted to is the one who canceled the debt. That's propitiation. So we can be confident. We can be confident in our salvation because it is finished. There aren't any leftovers for Jesus to clean up. It was a once and for all kind of sacrifice. That's how we can be confident, not in just God's intention for creation, but what it means for Christ to have come down incarnate and for us be our perfect propitiation. Which brings us to the last encouragement for us to hold fast. Christ's superior rule. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So I think to make sense of all that, we kind of need to understand why Moses? What, we're having another shift. We've gone from angels. He's nailed that down pretty well. Went from angels to humanity. And now, not just humanity, but to a specific person, to Moses. And I think what we need to understand about Moses in the eyes of this audience is that the Jewish world considered Moses the greatest person. You know, he goes out of his way to say, Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, because the Jews would have considered Moses as their greatest apostle, the greatest one sent from God on their behalf. They would have considered him the greatest priest of their confession, which is kind of confusing because Aaron was the like, first high priest but in a truer sense, even though Aaron was the first high priest, like no one would argue that God or that, that Moses had a very intimate relationship with God. He was the one that went onto Mount Sinai and received the law from him. He was the one that came back down with his face glowing just from looking at God's backside. So they really considered Moses the greatest priest, the greatest mediator of God's people and God. And even for them who had kind of an overinflated view of angels, even they would say Moses is greater than the angels, though. Like, look what Moses did. I think that kind of helps us understand that shift. He's, I mean, we're, all throughout this letter, we're going to continue to see him call Jesus out as better than, like, this person and this person. But he starts with Moses because, in their eyes, Moses was the greatest person. 
He's like, we're gonna get to a lot of people, but like right off the bat, <laughs> I'm going for the jugular on this one. Jesus is greater than Moses. Because it's not just that that Moses is not greater than Jesus. He's not even equal to Jesus. And he kind of uses the, the illustration of the house to kind of nail that down. You know, he's saying, a servant does not have as much honor as a son. You know, the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. I mean, if you, sh- if you show up to a great building, you know, like you marvel at the building, you know, it's amazing, but I feel like especially for a guy like Levi, you're like, but who designed this building? <laughs> it's like, it's cool that it's here, but like the mind that like went into like making a building, like that's what's impressive. Because anyone can build a building, but the person who like, not anyone, <laughs> there's permits and things, <laughs> education. <laughs> but like the person who designed that building, like how much more worthy of respect are they than, you know, the, the laborers who put it together? At least that was the thought the thought process there. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Moses was faithful. He's, he deserves respect. He de- deserves honor for the faithfulness that he put into serving the people of God. But how much more worthy is God, the one who made the people to be served? You know, if you think about it this way, for those of us who have kids, like, who do you have more love for? The daycare workers or the babysitters or your child? Like, who has more esteem in your eyes? Like, I'm going to pick Maeva all day. <laughs> like, she's my own flesh and blood. Not that I don't love the babysitters, you <laughs> know. But it's different. And I think that's what he's saying here. So then it's interesting that he says, we are that house. That thing that you give Moses so much esteem for and being faithful to, that's us. It's the people of God. What belongs to the son? His church. Christ's kingdom. Christ's church. We belong to him. We are his inheritance. And what we have inherited from him is everything he has afforded. His glory that we have been brought into. Many sons brought to glory. So we understand all that. And so we make a full 360 back to the first thing I said. Is that we should, we should see all of that. We should see the beauty of God's intention to restore his creation, to restore his people to right relationship. We should see the beauty in what Christ accomplished in the incarnation, what that actually meant, and the lengths he's willing to go to to accomplish that. And we should see his love and the beauty that that he calls us his, that we are his inheritance. And that should give us confidence. But what do we do with that confidence? Let's say that we perfectly, 100% of the time, like, are confident in that. Like, how do we go about boasting in our hope, in that hope of Christ?
because it is a condition. He says we are his house if we have confidence, if our confidence is rightly placed, if what we boast in as our hope is not the things of this world, (laughs) not angels, not the things we're sometimes impressed by, they're less than Christ, but if we're boasting in our hope in Christ and what he accomplished for us. In 1563, the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is is a series of questions and answers um, to help us understand doctrine. Those writers helped us kind of answer this question. So the very first question goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? What confidence can you have? What's your hope in life? What's your hope in the face of death? Here's what they're saying our answer should be. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. We hold fast. We hold fast to our confidence in what Christ has accomplished because it is an abiding truth. It is an unshakable truth that Jesus has fully paid for our sin, that he works all things out for good for those he loves, that he disciplines those he loves to that end, that he isn't unaware of how you suffer. And ultimately we belong in him and that we are his house, that by our faith, displayed in the fruit of the Spirit working in us, making us more and more like Him. He makes us willing and ready to live for Him, willing and ready to boast about that as our hope, our sin fully paid for in a way we couldn't accomplish on our own as our hope. Is that not a comfort? If you believe in that, if you believe in Jesus today, is that not comforting? There's nothing that we can do to undo that. That Jesus isn't going anywhere. That you can't surprise him with a sin, past, present, or future, because he's already dealt with it, because it's already been paid for by his blood. That you aren't going through a suffering that he can't sympathize with. 
because he was fully like us. And funny enough, the second question of the catechism goes like this. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? What must you do to live and die in the joy of the hope that we should be boasting in? The answer is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance. It's kind of what we just covered, right? <laughs> like, we see God's original intention. We understand that there is sin, that there is a necessary debt that needed to be paid off. But if we understand what the author of Hebrews is saying about what Christ accomplished for us in the incarnation and propitiation, that we know that we are free from that sin and the shame that comes with it from the misery. And how do we thank God for such a deliverance? That we boast in our confidence in Christ. That we boast in the hope that we have in his gospel. To boast about something is not to keep it to yourself. <laughs> it's to say, I'm gonna tell you this. Like, I'm, I'm proud enough of this that I want you to know about it. That's to boast in it. It's to look at Jesus, to look at what he was saying in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 8 and to say, Jesus, you are my worship leader. I will praise God for what he's done with you. Jesus, you trusted the Father, so I will put my trust in him also. Jesus, you've promised me a future where you will return and the brokenness of this world will finally be restored. You've done that all throughout scripture, so much so that you've named your people over and over as specific things to remind us of that. We can boast about those things. We can have confidence in what Christ has done and what he will do when he returns to finally fulfill God's ultimate intention. That's our confidence this morning. And I hope if that's the first time you're hearing that or the thousandth time you've heard about Christ's sacrifice, I, I, honestly, I earnestly pray that's encouraging for you. It's encouraging for me that no matter how many times I see myself as insignificant, as a speck, a dot in history, Christ does not see me that way. He sees me as a son in his house. He sees me as family. And he sees you that way too. And I hope that you can be confident in that so much so that you're willing to boast about it. Our confidence isn't in angels or great men or our accomplishments. It's in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I desperately need to remember that. We all desperately need to remember that. That our, our confidence 
can't be in the things of this world that are broken and fading. Jesus, you are what's lasting. What you accomplished on the cross is what's lasting. I pray that our confidence would be in that. That when people look at us, they say, where does that hope you have come from? How can you have comfort when the things around you are falling apart? Jesus, let our answer be you and what you've done. Let us never stop thanking you for it. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.